Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. This is episode 215. And this was a really special one. My guest on today's episode is Ron Whitehead. He goes by the name of the outlaw poet, and I think that is a perfect description. Ron's a poet. It's in his blood. It's in, it's in every word that he says. When we were talking via email before this, every email response is poetic. I read a few interviews with him but, you know, to research for this, and his words, they just like sizzle. For most of this episode, Ron just talked, because when Ron talks, you're, you're going to listen. It's captivating, it's scattered, it's wild, it's all over the place. This was really, uh, really an honor for me. He's a Kentucky dude, but he's been all over the world. He's taught, he's performed poetry with a band. He's put together performances and like... uh, Symposiums. He participated in Gonzo Fest here. He ran with some of the beats. He was close with Hunter S. Thompson. Those things alone are going to give you a wealth of stories. But the story today is is really about Ron. You know, again, Bourdain, right? Bourdain, Bourdain. But in watching Bourdain, in the places that he went, he would always sort of find that kindred spirit in that place. So he's in uh, Montana and he's with Jim Harrison. Or was it, was it Florida where he was with Iggy Pop? And to me, if he ever went and did a Kentucky episode, a Louisville episode, he would have done one with Ron. Ron is an, an outlaw in every sense of the word. But at the same time, his words are powerful, but very soft-spoken. And there's a, there's a love behind all of it, if that makes sense. So this was a real honor and a treat. Les and I got to hang out, talk before the episode, talk after the episode, and it's, it's, it's great to now know Ron, have him in our lives and have him as someone that we will always be able to talk to after this. So this was really great. <laughs> I just, I don't know how else to say it. Right after this intro, I'm going to have a recording of one of his poems. I will not bow down. And there's various versions of it. So if you want to check him out online or on YouTube or something like that, this is just one of those versions. But it's one that I think is really cool. And so I wanted you to hear this. That's going to come right after this. In the notes for this episode, as always, in the app you're looking at, uh, you'll find a link to, to check out some more Ron stuff. So make sure that you do that. I would also sit down for this episode with like a notebook or if you, even if you have your laptop there with an open Google Doc or whatever, 
because there's lots of Easter eggs in it. Ron references a lot of people. I didn't get to ask him if he, if he knows Patti Smith, but it's kind of like, uh, like a Patti Smith book. She just, there's so many nuggets in there. There's all these artists and authors that she references, and Ron references a lot of folks today. And if you don't know about them, it would be great for you to, to check them out. So I would sit down and with some way to take some notes during this one. All right, there's also a Patreon link in the show notes. It's a subscription-based service where you give monthly and you get some cool kickbacks. But if you can't do that, you know, liking, subscribing, rating, and reviewing, and just telling a friend about the podcast goes a really long way. Okay, Voyagers, enjoy this conversation with Ron Whitehead. I will not bow down. I will not bow down, America. I will not bow down to your government, to your religion. I will not bow down, America, to your materialism, to your international corporations, to your religious shrines, your stock markets, your shopping malls. I will not bow down, America, to your coal mines, to your power plants. I will not go crawling down the deep shafts at midnight. I will not bow down, America, to your invasion of privacy, to your moral absolutes, your religious political might. I will not bow down, America, to your assassins, the CIA, the FBI, the corporate police state, your killing, murdering machines. I will not bow down, America, to your bureaucracies, to your schools, to your attempt to make me the model citizen of your state, of your church. I will not bow down, America, to your history of lies, to your secrets in the best interest of to protect the people. America, I pledge allegiance to those who were here before you, to those who will be here after you are gone. America, I pledge allegiance to the woman I love and to our children. I pledge allegiance to my friends and allies, my guides and angels, both seen and unseen. America, I pledge allegiance to poetry, to music, to art, to the literary renaissance, to the global literary community. I pledge allegiance to the beat, to the outsider. I pledge allegiance to meditation, to stillness, to magic, to beautiful mysticism, to ecstasy, to awe and aha, to the Big Bang epiphany, to altered states of consciousness. I pledge allegiance to seeing into the occult, the unknown, to seeing into every day, into the ordinary, and being amazed. I pledge allegiance to the sacred and the profane, to Gnostical turpitude. I pledge allegiance to my physical body and to the knowledge that I am more than my physical body. I pledge allegiance to seeing more than the physical world and to those of higher frequency, vibration, and consciousness. I pledge allegiance to passing through the sacred fire to entering the upper chamber of the Golden Pyramid, to levitating over the open sarcophagus, to out-of-body experience. I pledge allegiance to the hottest sex and to gentle affection. I pledge allegiance to fractal geometry, the geometry of clouds and coastlines, to two times two equaling five. I pledge allegiance to failure, to failing as no other dare fail. I pledge allegiance to taking risk, to holy daring, to nam myoho, renge kyo, to accepting responsibility for my own actions. I pledge allegiance to not achieving the American dream of success. America, I pledge allegiance to trees, to green grass, to brown earth, to wildflowers of every color, to wilderness, to turquoise Native American skies, 
to rivers, lakes, and seas, to healing the earth. I pledge allegiance to the Holy Spirit, to the Word, and to silence. I pledge allegiance to dreams, to birth, to the journey, and to death. I pledge allegiance to candor, to sincerity, to laughter, to irony, to passion, to compassion, to empathy, and to helping those in need. I pledge allegiance to resurrection of the heart. No, America, I will not bow down. Whatever, so we're talking about cigarettes, though, but I'll put that in my intro. Okay, so, and, and we can go back over this real quick. Oh, yeah. So, do you do this? Set it up however you want to do it. The introductions, I listen to part of the one you sent me with um, uh, the fellow from Louisville who I know. Chad? And went to some of his shows. Um, Ryan. Ryan, yeah. You know Ryan. I didn't know that. Yeah. He's a nice guy. And we know each other up. But I produced in the early to mid-90s there, Louisville was on fire with, uh, the streets of Louisville were on fire with the arts, with, and I, you know, and I was, had a lot to do with that because I was producing, I started the global literary renaissance and I was producing numerous arts events, music and poetry events. Um, a friend, Ken Fielding, and I produced, the first event was an open mic on Main Street at a club on Main Street. Over 400 people came to that, and a couple musicians came up to me and said, do you mind if we do a song? I said, sure. And I saw the energy change in the room when the music started. And so I got the idea to combine music and poetry when I produced events and to introduce people to poetry who normally just go to concerts, music concerts, and vice versa. And it, it's, um, it's a great energy. And I grew up with... Um, I grew up on a farm... In Western Kentucky, I come from a long line of coal miners, farmers, holy roller preachers, and strong women, and spiritual people, gypsies, uh, creative types, especially on my mom's side. So I was listening, and Mama's the oldest of 13, she'll be 89 in May. Daddy was one of 11. He worked at the coal mines for 40-some years. I worked at the mines three times myself. I did a whole lot of different jobs. Uh, I went to college right out of high school. It, it bored me to tears, and I was too much of a wild child, and so after three years, I dropped out, and I, I got married to my first wife. Been married three times, and almost married a couple other times. And... and um, it took me several years of, I knew I was a poet from an early age. Daddy, although he dropped out of school in the 10th grade and became, I asked him one time in an interview I did for a book I was writing, I said, 
sense. I said, why did you get into so many fights at school? And her daddy was a Paul Bunyan of a man. He was a badass. He was the godfather of the local farming and mining community. And he said, I'd rather... And I said, why, and why did you start working when you were 16 at the coal mines? And he said, I'd rather be working than going to school. And I always told my college students, don't ever think, you know, a college degree will open doors for you, but don't ever think that you're better than anybody just because you have a college degree, because some of the smartest, wisest, and best, hardest working people I've ever known never made it through high school. So, but but go to college and it will open doors for you. But these days, you know, I say go to college and go to trade school too, <laughs> both. <laughs> if you want to make some money, I mean, if if you just if you're only interested in the arts like me, just be an artist. And 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 I have a I've suggested a path for those folks too, and that is to be an autodidact, to teach yourself, learn everything you can in school, but but also learn everything you can on your own. You'll learn much more that way. School of Hard Knocks is the best school of all. But anyway, um, Mama, the oldest of 13, was a singer, is a singer, sang alto. Her sister, Joe Carolyn, my aunt, 11 months younger than Mama, sang soprano. And they, along with their dad, granddaddy, Raymond Dick, the Dixie Yodler Render, was also was a jack of all trades, but a recording artist. And I was listening to that old time mountain white hillbilly blues when I was still in Mama's belly. And so I grew up with Mama and Joe took us kids, or six of us, I was oldest six, to every wedding and every funeral for miles around. And so to this day, I get weddings and funerals confused mm. and <laughs> and and to have a lot of experience in that area you know it's it's easy to get them confused but but uh, but I love music and I and I became convinced you know I listen to old time music I grew up in a southern baptist church and I went my own way early on. I started questioning everything when I was a boy. Most of my family's still Southern Baptist, but um, my only religion is love. And but <laughs> I started asking questions to the Sunday school teacher who would go get the preacher, and the preacher would come and take me out of Sunday school class and say, "Ronnie, some things you there's no need question. You just have to accept." because we don't have answers to them. And that just wasn't enough for me. So I kept asking the questions. And then somebody gave me a copy of Kyle Gibran's The Prophet when I was a young man. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is awesome. This is great. So I took it to the preacher and he said, Ronnie, <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> and then I started studying um, one thing led to another, and I started reading, the, studying the mystics of all the major and religions and the non-religions, um, and they, I've always been attracted more to the mystics uh, than any 
anybody else when it comes to spirituality and shaman and mysticism and and all of that. But as far as music goes, it was that our song leader, Brother Mas- Matthew Tishner, Gospel Quartet, the veterans performed at our church. Matthew was a song leader, as good guys, postman for our farming community. And it was fantastic music. There was a lot more energy and life in it. And then Elvis came along, Elvis Presley on Ed Sullivan show on TV. We watched that every Sunday night. And man, that was electric. And I love, I was born on Thanksgiving Day, November 23rd, 1950, in the midst of the worst blizzard to ever hit Kentucky. It included lightning and thunder, and I've been living in one storm after another ever since. And Daddy told that story every Thanksgiving about my birth in that storm and how terrible it was. And I love storms, and I love lightning. Ideally, when I die, I would like to be struck by the largest bolt of lightning to ever hit Kentucky and just vaporized. And, uh, but Edgar Casey, the greatest psychic of all time, was a a farm boy who grew up uh, outside of Hopkinsville, Kentucky, an hour from where I grew up. He died in 1945, the same year George Ivanovich Gurdjieff, another Sufi master, um, died in 1945, speaking of Gibran and the Sufi mystics. Uh, he was a Sufi mystic as well. They provided light to the world during dark years, World War One and World War Two. Uh, but Edgar Cayce said in one of his 15,000 readings that lightning is the closest we can come to know God in nature. And I have, I watch lightning storms, storms. I always go outside and storms, I love them. I've driven through storms. I'm not one of those people to go hide when a storm comes. I go out in them, and I lived in Phoenix, Arizona for a year, and I saw some of the most beautiful lightning I've ever seen in my life across the desert in Arizona. I love the American Southwest. But it was that energy of lightning I recognized in first in gospel music gospel quartets and then in Elvis and then the Beatles and the Stones and Bob Dylan came along and Bob Dylan had that poetry and Daddy, although he he was self-taught, he loved literature and he loved poetry and he read Louis L'Amour, the Westerns, he loved those, he turned me on to Louis L'Amour and Westerns I still love Westerns to this day he turned me on to uh, Kentucky writer Jesse Stewart who wrote just real hillbilly mountain stories about people. I love those stories. Um, And there's my friend Jesse Stewart. Uh, My my friend Lee Pennington wrote a book about Jesse Stewart and Jesse Stewart was his teacher over in the mountains of eastern Kentucky and Lee uh, nominate was a Kentucky Jesse Stewart and Lee Pennington were Kentucky poet laureates, and Lee Pennington nominated me to be Kentucky poet laureate, and that decision is being made right now uh, by the Arts Council. But there are a lot of connections there, and Daddy um, subscribed to Reader's Digest, and whenever one the new one came, 
there was something called word power in it. And there were 10 words, and Daddy would always yell, Ronnie, come in here. And he would ask, say the word. I had to spell it and give him the definition. And so it increased. It helped increase my vocabulary. And then later on, I established my own routine of increasing my vocabulary. I've always been an avid reader, and I would underline or circle a word I didn't understand. I wouldn't slow down because I just wanted to read the story. And then I started the practice of, on Sundays, I would look up the words I'd underlined or circled, the definition of them, and I kept like a, a journal of those words. And um, so that increased my vocabulary because one of my frustrations, even though I did well in school, I graduated when I was 17, I left home and I wanted to take a mental crap of everything that had been force-fed into me and discover who I was. And I just wanted to escape. And um, I was so excited to leave home. And, and I had a lot of anger and rage in me because my dad was a, he was a wonderful person who I loved deeply, but who I also had so much anger towards and rage because he was such a dominant, uh, he had a, a hot temper and and I felt like as a boy that I was the protector of my mother and um, and it took me years to heal those bleeding wounds, but I did. And finally towards my, the end of my dad's life, we healed our relationship. It was a big deal, so, and I was there when he died. I'd come back from um, Nicaragua where I had been um, one of the featured poets from all seven continents at the annual International Poetry Festival in Granada, and it was amazing. And I lived for three months with my translator, um, Lorena Lobita, a beautiful woman who had come to one of my readings at a big tour I did of the Bay Area in Oakland, San Francisco, 14 readings. And she was living with a Black Panther at the time, and she had been raised by grandmothers in uh, Central and South America. Her parents were one was an archaeologist, one an anthropologist, and she lived in Oakland, right in the heart of where the Black Panthers started, and she had a house there she had inherited, and she spent a lot of time in Mexico, in Allende, it's a kind of a long name, it's a town in Mexico, it's filled with expatriates, and she moved down there now, but anyway, she found out about my reading in Granada, and I don't know if she asked me. I invited her to be my translator because she's she learned Spanish when she learned English, and she was she's like turned out she was the best translator there. And one thing led to another. I ended up living with her for three months in Oakland, and we split up. And I came back two weeks before Daddy died, and I was there. Um. And 30 
members of my family. I come from a huge family, size of a small army. 30 of us stood in the living room with Daddy, and we sang the old mountain songs. And each of us, we took turns and went up to him and said our farewells. And then he closed his eyes and died. And so the, those wounds were healed. And that was a good thing. But back to the music real quick. Life is a tangent and all things show it. I thought so once, but now I know it. The older I've gotten, I'm 70 now, the more I realize that everything is connected, everything. And sometimes in my classes when I was teaching, I would have to ask my students, now, where did I start? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they would remind me and I'd go back. i say, oh, yeah. And I like I'd, the tangents. Though. I'd it's go okay. back to the beginning. <laughs> because everything's connected and it gets out there and there's another connection. And so the music, it was the lightning, the electric lightning energy in that music, especially in rock and roll, when it came along, combined with the poetry with Bob Dylan, and he's the one who really gave the life to po- to rock and roll as far as I was concerned because the lyrics were important. It wasn't just the sound. It was what was said. And that lifted me off my seat. And that's when something in me realized that it's poetry with music. And that's why years later, I mean, I've had a number of bands now from the Viking Hillbilly Apocalypse Review, Southside, and um, the Storm Generation Manifesto, um, in which I combine, there's music, all kinds of music, and, and singing, but there's also the spoken word with, accompanied by music, and, um, so, so that's part of the story that took this country boy, has taken this country boy all over the world. It's poetry and combining the music and the poetry and realizing that collaborating with other people in with poetry and music and in the arts, and I include all the arts, I include uh, painting and photography and film um, and dance theater in some of the like bigger events that I produce and I've produced anywhere from smaller two hour events to 24 and 48 and 72 and 90 hour non-stop music and poetry insomniacathons which are wild crazy ass events that go non-stop and um, and that's um, all of the above had becoming a literary detective, becoming an editor of Thinker Review at the University of Louisville, and starting an international poetry series, um, and bringing in poets like Diane De Prima and Allen Ginsberg and Mary Baraka and Lawrence Ferlinghetti and Gregory Corso and the list just grew and grew and 
I realized when I was doing all that that word of mouth is still the best form of advertising at all. And the more people that know about you and the work you're doing and consider it worthwhile and important and interesting and exciting. For example, when Allen Ginsberg left here after spending a week here in October of 92, he went to Lowell, Massachusetts, where he was a featured poet at the annual Lowell Celebrates Kerouac Festival. And he told the audience there, if you don't know about Ron Whitehead down there in Louisville and what he's doing, you better find out. And he told him about 1,500 people coming to his reading in, in Louisville, the largest ever poetry reading in Kentucky. And there were 150 people at his reading in Lowell. <laughs> he was trying to shame them a little bit yeah. and tell them to get their shit together. <laughs> and I, I thought, you know, 150 people at a poetry reading is pretty good, you know, in Lowell. So, But then he went to, he, he did a tour later on towards the end of his life. He went to, he did a tour of Ireland where Bono opened for him, Lee Singer for you too, and he mm-hmm. told Bono all about me. And so two weeks after Ginsburg got done with his tour, I got a letter with a check for $150 in the mail from Bono ordering some of my titles. And so, and then that's the sort of thing that has happened to me. And um, and Diane DePrima, when she came, first lady of the Beat Generation, um, we hit it off and became friends. And I said, Diane, when she was here, I said, Diane, I started the whole series with her because I have always fought for since I was a boy and became the champion and defender of my mother and realizing that this ain't right what's going on in the world that everything should be equal you know I saw how hard she worked she worked her finger to the bone every damn day and and still wasn't she was treated with respect but not as an equal, and there is a big difference. And so I fought for equal rights for everybody. And I saw early on the people in literature who had. And I go back to the beginning of William Blake, who started the Romantic movement in England, which was the beginning of shifting the focus away from uh, the king and nobility to the individual, and then the British Romantics, Shelley, and then the Walt Whitman, and in the United States, and and um, to this day, my favorite prose writer, Mark Twain, and then the Beat Generation, um, people, and there much has been written about the misogyny. There's been con- condemnation and criticism towards the Beat Generation, and with misogyny being at the forefront of that criticism. But having known those folks, having visited with them, talked with them, and studied and taught their works, I think that's an oversight. And to look at, and I learned a long time ago that when you study a writer, if you know anything about him at all, and so many women had to write anonymously and when you see a non, it's usually a woman whose work you're reading, um, then um, then if you study the lives of the writers 
and so often there, you can't consider the, the work and the author. You have to keep them separate. But when you do, you have to place their lives in the historical context of which they wrote. You have to understand the history of the time and the place of where they were writing and what the Beats did at the time they wrote what they did was incredible. And they've opened the doors and freed the way for the, the female rights movement, the gay rights movement, the freedom of speech movement in so many different waves. And so I can go on and on about all that shit. But anyway, that brings us to back to... Uh, we had been talking about Iceland originally mm. and me having co-produced with Al Ronowitz, the rock journalist of his day, who introduced the world to the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and to Bob Dylan, and but who had done too much cocaine and threatened to blow up the building in New York where he worked if he didn't get his way over something. <laughs> Dumbass move, Al. <laughs> and got blacklisted forever. <laughs> and so I ended up working with him. We co-produced that event, and I invited people from all over the world, many different countries across the U.S., to participate. And three people came from Iceland. And since I was a little boy, I had been reading, joining book clubs and reading, reading, joining the biography, the geography book clubs, reading about people and places around the world, places I wanted to go. And some of those places were, had to do with Vikings. And so I went, who are the Vikings, man? I want to know them. <laughs> I want to meet them. And so these Vikings came. <laughs> Well, of all those places that you've been, and yes. you've taught in New York, you've taught overseas, uh, why do you come back to Kentucky? I, well, <clears throat> I, no matter where I go, I take Kentucky with me. And, and I always preach the Kentucky gospel, and I hope everybody feels that way or can get to a place where they feel that way about where they grew up that they one way I, the main way I found my voice as a writer once upon a time I, I created seven different authors with different names who wrote in different genres to represent the different aspects of my being until I moved when I moved to the American Southwest that magical place I almost stayed in New Mexico on the way to Arizona. So I love northern New Mexico, where Georgia O'Keeffe painted some of her most famous works. And I've per performed out there in different places where she painted those works on a cross-country tour with the Viking Hillbilly Apocalypse Review. Um, I just, remind me of your question. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, why do you come back to and live in Kentucky? Oh, okay, when you've I got stuck in northern New Mexico for yeah, a yeah. second. <laughs> I was seeing Georgia O'Keeffe. <laughs> um, there's something about Iceland. I, I had no idea when I went there what it would be like other than what I had read. But just as the airplane touched the ground I felt 
an electric connection go through my body. And so it was the place and the people who I felt this connection with. I love Iceland. The one word I came up with to describe it is majestic, finally, to describe it. There's no place on earth like it. The same applies to Kentucky. Places in the American Southwest, the same applies to those places. The land of enchantment is a perfect name. You see that on license plates, or you're used to it for New Mexico. It is the land of enchantment. Kentucky, they really don't have a good logo for unbridled spirit. It's a bunch of bullshit for the Kentucky <laughs> license plate logo. But there's no place like it. And yeah, there's a lot of ignorant. There's a lot of dumbasses here. There are. There's a lot of dumbasses everywhere. And there's a lot of incredible people everywhere, too. And I've discovered that if you're friendly, when you're friendly, when you travel, you're going to meet friendly people. And so travel breaks down barriers. It's one of the best ways to educate yourself uh, about the world and the people of the world. And But... Part, part of that, the answer that to your question rests in the numinous, the mysterious, the unknown. Mm. <laughs> it, it's one of those unexplainable things, but there is great beauty here um, in nature. And I've, I'm a wild nature Kentucky boy. And so I... Growing up, I spent half my time in nature and half reading and watching movies and doing other things. I've been an athlete all my life. I love sports. and But there's something I tell people, you know, Kentucky for a long time was the largest co-producing state in the United States and in the world, the largest co-producing area in the world. And my dad operated the world's, at, at one time, it was the world's largest strip mining machine. And that's how, strangely enough, I became an environmentalist. First of all, I love nature. I don't like harming uh, animals. I love animals. And Daddy used to take my brother and me to work with him sometimes, and we loved going to work with him on that machine, which is like a monstrosity, like 70 stories high, something ridiculous. You could get two railroad cars into its bucket, and it ripped the earth, virgin trees, the roots out of the ground down to that coal vein so trucks could back down there, drive, they could clear a path, a road, and and more easily obtain the coal. And uh, then I just, something said, and I couldn't hold that against my dad who was doing, providing for his family in a way that he, he was doing what he thought was right. But I saw that this is not right and there's gotta be a better way. And there are obviously better ways. Uh, solar, water, 
I've done a half dozen tours in the Netherlands. They learn to create energy from water. If geothermal heat in Iceland, man, it's the best heat I've ever experienced in my life. You can go barefoot in those brutal win- winters. Heat is, emanates from the floor. Um, so given the opportunity, even though we have fucked this world up since the advent of the Industrial Revolution in the mid-19th century, to me, that means if we allow ourselves, allow those with the wisdom to make the decisions, then we can heal, help heal the earth. The earth doesn't need humans to heal it. The earth can puke and shit us out and get us away from itself and heal itself in no time. So in a sense, I'm not as worried about the earth as I am about us. And we're going to kill ourselves if we don't make some drastic changes. And I, I was born with hope in my chest, even though it, I have plenty of friends who aren't hopeful. And, and I see the post-apocalyptic landscapes, and I love reading post-apocalyptic literature and all of that, but um, there is a pristine nature in Kentucky that I love and admire, and there is an iconoclasm, an iconoclasm in, that is just in our blood here. Diamonds are created from coal, from the intense pressure from all sides. And that's something that, if you experience it firsthand, sure, you can experience it other places. But there are plenty of good examples in the arts. Um, In politics, my number one favorite president in the United States is Abraham Lincoln. I don't care what. Um, Indiana and Illinois say they can do all the claiming they want, but that boy was born and raised his early years in Kentucky. (laughs) And so, um, and I've been to those places in Indiana and Illinois where he lived, but, but uh, it's a, it's a beautiful place. I mean, look at Johnny Depp, who I've worked with. He was born in Orangeboro where I was born, first person in my family to be born in a hospital. Um, and the last place in the United States where a public hangling, hanging was held, an official public hanging, Orangeboro, Kentucky, where Depp and I were born. And, um, but um, Hunter S. Thompson, of course, from right here in Louisville, have you been to Ranstow Avenue where he grew up? No. Okay. His mother, Virginia, who I became friends with last years of her life at his request, he asked me to watch over her because so many, Hunter did, because so many, a number of journalists were approaching her to get stories from her about him acting like they were friends of his and he didn't even know them. And so I told him I would, and I did. And so I learned more about Hunter by hanging out with his mom than I ever learned from reading any of the books, and some are brilliant, that have now been published about his life and work. So that's my answer about Kentucky and why I love Kentucky part of it. I can go on and on. And there are lots of other people 
Everly Brothers. I studied at Oxford for a while, won a couple scholarships, studied at the graduate school there, studied with Valentine Cunningham, the head of English literature there. And when I knocked on his door, he came to the door at Corpus Christi College. I stayed at Exeter where J.R.R. Tolkien, one of my favorite writers, stayed. That was amazing. He said, fucking amazing, man. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and so Valentine comes to the door and knocks, and I'm expecting anything, you know. And he, we exchanged names, and he looks down at my feet. I knew what was coming in. And he looked back up at me, at, at me and I said, What? He said, you've got shoes on. I know people from Kentucky wore shoes. <laughs> I said, ha ha, smart ass. We'll get along great. And we did. <laughs> that was funny. But uh, the, it turned out that he played trombone in a big band. And his favorite group was the Everly Brothers from Muhlenberg County across the Green River from Ohio County where I grew up in western Kentucky. And Mama says we're cousins. <laughs> A lot of people say everybody in Kentucky's cousins, but <laughs> I, I don't think that's true. But uh, but I love the Everly Brothers too, and they influenced and inspired the Beatles and rock music back in the day. And Loretta Lynn and Bill Monroe birthed bluegrass music in Ohio County, where I'm from. And um, so the roots run deep here Muhammad Ali of course wherever I travel I'm asked about two people first then others the first two are Muhammad Ali and Hunter S. Thompson people want to hear stories about them and I was almost killed uh, I was with I was invited to to the opening in Bloomington Indiana of the Tibetan Mongolian World Peace Center and the Dalai Lama's brother, Norbu, was a professor at Indiana University, and I was invited there to that opening. And I was hoping to ask Ali to give me a poem to publish in my Publish in Heaven poster series. And um, it turned out I, that I had... I just happened to be standing after lunch in the building waiting to go up to the hill where all these people from all over the world were spending the day talking, sharing poems, stories, singing. It's an amazing day. I spent much of the day in tears. It was so moving, and um, I was going through a lot of personal stuff, too. The end of her marriage and... Um, but I heard this shuffling of feet and I turned and looked and here comes, I thought the, the place, the room where I was was empty. One person was watching. So I have a witness to the event. And here comes Ali and his daughter, the, the fight, the boxer, turned the corner. And so I like, oh no, here's my opportunity. So I went up to him and I said, oh Muhammad, oh Muhammad, will you please help me no, sting like a butterfly, search like a bee. No, sting like a butterfly, float like a bee. Oh, Muhammad, oh, Muhammad, will you please help me? Because I'm searching for... And that. then all of a sudden, these muscular arms grabbed me and slung me over and threw me against the wall. And I was like, what the hell is going on? And these two Secret Service guys had come up behind me, and, and one had his throat, his uh, 
arm up to my throat. He said, what the hell do you think you're doing? I said, I, I was sharing a poem with Muhammad Ali. <laughs> I could barely talk. <laughs> and Ali walked, he watched the whole thing, and he walked over, and he tapped the guy on the shoulder and, and nodded for him to come on. And they went out and got in this black SUV and drove up to the top of the hill. I walked up there and watched as the Dalai Lama and Muhammad Ali met for the first time. And that was amazing. That was incredible. But uh, I had read, I had written, I'd met the Dalai Lama. I was going to ask about this, yeah. It, it was just so incredible. I mean, part of my story, this Kentucky story, man, it, it's just so amazing. The things that happen and have happened to me in this state. And, uh, <clears throat> but in in February of 1990, it was 31 years ago, I had spent several years, I had moved back to Kentucky, and um, I had started working with Marjorie Richmond, who I had met through the mail and through the phone when I was living in Arizona. <laughs> when I went to the Edgar Casey Center there in Scottsdale and said, I'm interested in earth changes. Can you tell me, um, can, will Kentucky be a safe place is when, according to Casey and according to geologists, every t several thousand years, magnetic poles of the earth shift. And it's one reason we've had the ice age and other ages. And, um, and so we're in that time. And according to some, this poses started shifting. That's part of the reason, other than fossil fuels, the, there's this acceleration of climate changes. And uh, and I asked about Kentucky, and they they gave me Marjorie's contact info, so I sent her a letter, and we started communicating. Marjorie died when she was 102, and she lived in Orangeboro, outside of Orangeboro, on a big 500-acre farm. And... Uh, so we met and had gone through a lot of studies and spiritual practices together. And that's another story, part of my journey. But she called me one day and said, we have been called to meet Anna Mitchell Hedges and her crystal skull. Anna Mitchell Hedges had inherited the main of the 13 crystal skulls. And some people only know about the crystal skulls through the, um, the movie. Indiana Jones? That's right, the Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> yeah. well, it's the same crystal skull. It's in that movie. So oh, so anyway, it was the International Metaphysical Conference just happened to be held in across the river from Louisville that year, and a couple of hundred people had been invited to this, this to meet the crystal skull, to meet Anna Mitchell Hedges, who was had Marjorie's birthday, which is January the 14th, was a couple years older than Marjorie. Her dad was... England's main explorer, and they had discovered this pyramid, this city in uh, Central America, and she was an adopted child, and she was 16, I think, and gone out early and saw light shining through the base of this pyramid that they were going to uncover, and she told her dad, and three days later, they opened a hole enough for people to climb in there, and they got a lot of stuff out, including this crystal skull, and I saw the, another crystal skull in the British Museum in London when I was studying in Oxford. So anyway, I went to this meeting and we heard this message channeled through this 
young woman who's a psychic from Canada who was traveling with Anna Mitchell Hedges, and it was the information was travel channeled through the skull um, about, and it was about the continent of Atlantis, which rests under the Atlantic Ocean now, and went out from there. And it was about um, the mess. The, the culmination of the message was that. Um, we've been called to as emissaries to go out into the world to uplift and inspire to comfort and heal and to awaken everyone um, to the awareness that we have a non-stop river of creative fire flowing through us that God, the Holy Spirit the creative forces are ever present um that we're surrounded by synchronicity. Uh, and want, the more we open ourselves up to synchronicity, the more we experience it. And and then if that's the crux of the message, but if you want to um, consecrate the vows of this message, come up at the end of the talk here and touch the skull. And so oh. I was raised with good manners. <laughs> and... Um, <laughs> And so you always let other people, especially ladies, go first. And Marjorie was much older than me. And, um, but as soon as that message was over, I was like the first person up to the skull to touch it. And so I got up there, I was like, Whoops! And I turned around. Lo and behold, Mar Marjorie was right behind me. She was the second person, and I was shocked to see not everybody came up to touch the skull. And some people had chosen not to, or too intimidated by the experience. But it was after that experience that doors that I had knocked on previously until my head was bloody from knocking and never opened, opened automatically. And it was after that, all these incredible changes started occurring in my life. And, and it was, the coming years were a whirlwind of activity, of immersion completely. And I had to, make, I had to get to a place in my life where I made the decision to surrender my will to doing the work I'd been called to do, which was my creative work, which I'd known since I was a boy, but I had to accept it and say, yes, I will, no matter what. And, and so it was not long after that, you know, I became the editor. I started meeting all these people and I did it through hard work. It was all hard work. And I learned to be a hard worker on the farm. And, you know, I can't stand whiners and complainers to not whine or complain, get the job done. And, um, and so then uh, after I invited and those the early people I invited to Louisville, I also wanted to bring Lawrence Furlong Getty because I had been co-owner of 
Kentucky's first underground bookstore, which I had named for Mad Men only, after a magic mm-hmm. theater. And Herman Hesse's Steppenwolf, which was published in 1927. And Herman Hesse is one of the, my favorite authors. He's a German author. He was anti-war. And he had to move to Switzerland, where he spent the last years of his life, because after World War One, he told the German people, if you don't change... Um, and leave your hateful ways behind. You're going to see a. You think that was the, World War One was the worst war? You will see another war if you don't change. And he had some psychic abilities too. And they not only didn't heed him, but they, you know, threatened his life. He had to move to Switzerland. And so I had this bookstore, and I sold. This was a long time ago, like 1970, and it was in Lexington, and had a head shop right next to it called the store but where we sold all paraphernalia and everything drug related and water beds and posters and all this stuff and uh, incense and herbs and but in the bookstore we sold records vinyl and books whatever the hell we wanted to sell and so I sold all the members of the beat generation I've been reading about beat generation when I was on the farm uh, we got life magazine and like the magazines of the day with lots of pictures about what was going on in the culture and the country and around the world and and I read all that stuff and so Furlong Getty was one of those I knew about City Lights books in San Francisco Furlong Getty just died a month ago his birthday's today happy birthday Lawrence he's 102 today he died February the 22nd I think and I used to call him on his birthday every year and sing him happy birthday and he would say Ron is that you <laughs> he recognized my my voice um, which has some accent just a little bit <laughs> between the <years. laughs> yeah I thought about that when I went to England for the first time I said like, oh shit just for a second I thought oh no <laughs> Oxford they speak proper English there <laughs> and I said now fuck them you know this is the way I talk yeah I will accept them the way they talk and so anyway it, it worked out just fine but um where the hell was I Furlong Caddy yeah so I brought Furlong Caddy back to the Dalai Lama and but it took me a year see Furlong Caddy is one of the first people I tried to come get to come to Louisville and he would always tell me you know, I'm semi-retired. I really don't. You know, I don't get out much anymore. I'm not interested. And so after a year, he said, you're never going to give up, are you? I, I laughed a little bit, and I said, no. And he said, okay, I tell you what. If you'll take me to Thomas Merton's grave, I'll come. And I said, okay, done deal. I hadn't visited Thomas Merton's grave. I hadn't visited the Abbey of Gethsemane. Have you ever heard of the Abbey of Gethsemane? No. Okay, it's an hour south of Louisville. It's in Trappist, Kentucky. It's the address, but it's the Abbey of Gethsemane. And it, um, <clears throat> Merton, Thomas Merton, one of the most prolific and inspirational spiritual writers of the 20th century, spent the first half of his life in Europe, where he was from. He moved to New York, wanting to become a famous writer became disenfranchised with the whole scene and decided he started visiting a Catholic church 
churches there and became enamored of Catholicism and the rituals and decided to become a monk, but didn't just want to be any monk. He wanted to become a member of the strictest order, which at the time was the Trappist order, which at, you couldn't even talk at that time in the Trappist order. If you had something to say, you'd have to write it down. Whoa. You couldn't speak out loud. And so he, his first assignment was the Abbey of Gethsemane. So he put him on a train. He came all the way from New York to Trappist, to Bargetown, then on to the Abbey. And he's buried there. Before he died, so Ferlin Gaddy came. I took him on the grand tour. Brother Patrick Hart, Merton's secretary and secretary to the abbot, um, gave us the grand tour. I ended up working with so many Merton people. His publisher, James Lachlan, who's the founder of New Directions Books, along with City Lights, the two main independent presses uh, in the history of the United States. Um, I've had many conversations with James Lachlan, Ezra Pound, mm-hmm. the the great poet. Um, Lachlan had asked, had given Pound some of his work. He had inherited lots of money. And he said, what do you think about my work? Tell me, be honest. And Pound said, publish famous poets. <laughs> In other words, he, his work wasn't worth shit. From Pound's point of view, Lachlan told me this story. He said, man, he said, I started working so hard on my own writing. He became a damn good poet later in his life. So I published a chapbook of Lachlan's poems and a poster by him, and he gave me a poem by Merton. All the Merton people I went to um, had told me, you know, it cost you a million dollars. And they looked, you know, snubbed me, looked down their noses at me, and no way wouldn't happen. But he gave me a, a Merton poem. And um, so so on the hour drive back from Abbey of Gethsemane, Ferlin Getty's first question when we left the Abbey was, who do you think they worship mo- most there at the Abbey, Merton or Jesus? I looked at him and laughed, and I said, Merton, Merton, obviously. And he said, yeah. And so we talked about it. He said, why don't you bring the Dalai Lama to Louisville for a reading and to the Abbey down here to visit Merton's grave? And then he told me, I said, that's a damn good idea. He said, has it? the Dalai Lama ever been to Kentucky? I said, I don't think so. I'll check. And, I, and he hadn't. And so um, so Ferlin Getty told me that Merton spent the last night of his life. See, Merton was ecumenical in his worldview, and he wrote, he correspond, he's an avid corresponder with people of all religions, all faiths, and he believed that we should embrace all of them. And the Pope, the, the conservative church, and the CIA, he was a big anti-Vietnam War peace activist, Merton was, and so a lot of people think that his supposedly accidental death in Asia of electrocution was murder. Mm-hmm. It's never been proven that it wasn't accidental. It was either the CIA or the Pope uh, or the Vatican uh, who had caused it because he shook up the the church, the Catholic church, because he, you know, he fought for rights for women. He had an affair with his nurse towards the end of his life, was written about in the biography 
uh, song for Nobody by Ron Seitz, who's a friend of mine, poet from Louisville who's passed away now. But Merton, unbeknownst to me at the time, had spent the last night of his life, he had gotten permission from the abbot to build his own hermitage and live away from the abbey so he could write more, which he did. And, And then he got permission to travel to Asia for this international um it was a buddhist conference i believe it it may have been more ecumenical more inclusive than simply buddhism but maybe not but he spent his last night in san francisco with ferlin gaddy and so and they talked all stayed up all night and talked and so ferlin gaddy told me about that merton went on to asia where he had three long talks with the dalai lama they became good friends and to this day the Dalai Lama praises Merton as the inspiration for him becoming more ecumenical in his worldview, more accepting of other faiths, other religions, um, and embrace people from all those. And he also talks about Merton being one of the great spiritual leaders of modern times. And so um, I worked for a year to bring the Dalai Lama and I finally gave up, and I would announce at my events um, that I was working to bring the Dalai Lama, and people, you know, knew that when I said I was going to do something, by God, I would do it. And I finally just, I gave up, and I just, at least I took a breather from it, and then I got a call one day from a friend of mine who was the the, the um, head of the... Um, the radio station at University of Louisville, and he said, Ron, are you going? I said, to what? And he said, to the Dalai Lama's talk. I said, what? And he said, the Dalai Lama's coming. I said, what? He said, yeah, uh, he's coming. He's going to give a talk at the Kentucky Center for the Arts. I said, what? And so I said, tell me, who's, what the hell? Tell me who's bringing him. So I'd talk with five people. Um, to ask for their help because I wasn't sure how to bring the Dalai Lama. I tried and failed to make contact with his people in Dharamsala, India, and but I knew a couple of people who had those contacts, so I'd gone and talked with them. Well, guess what? They loved the idea. They loved it so much that they made arrangements and they brought him. And I was going to bring the Dalai Lama and I was going to have him give a talk at U of L, where I made the price no never more than ten dollars, so everybody could afford to attend. Whoever didn't matter who it was, and if you needed help with the money, you didn't have to pay. And so then he was going to give this freaking reading at the Kentucky Center for the Arts, and they were going to have a hundred dollar dinner the evening before. And I was furious. I was uh-huh. so pissed off. And to the people. Who, two of the people I'd spoken with were the ones bringing him. And I've mentioned their names before. And uh, so, so okay. one of them's dead now. The other one isn't. But um, but I was just furious. And, and so I cussed for at least five minutes. And I'm not one of those people who believes that cussing is a sign of a lack of intelligence. I think it adds spice to language. I think it's a wonderful thing. I'm happy to hear that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those. <laughs> well, you know, you know, um, you know um, Mark Twain was too. He was a, just a genius cusser. <laughs> and so anyway... 
uh, Jen is as well, and she's as, certainly as good as I am. But my friend, John Justice, she said, Ron, are you done? And so I said, okay, yes. He, he said, look, I got an extra pass. If you want to go, I'd like for you to go with me. And so I cussed some more, and then I said, okay. And I went with him, and we they got a special room there at the Kentucky Center for the press. And so right towards the end of the talk, somebody stuck their head in the door and said, there's going to be um, a brief press interview for the Dalai Lama in the Mary Anderson room after his talk. And John and I looked at each other and shook our heads, and we went. And so Jay McGowan, I'll say it, who's the president of Bellarmine University, is the Catholic University, private college, university here in town, is one of the people I went and talked with. He's passed away now. And he was one of the two people who brought the Dalai Lama. And so he hosted the press conference and he and the other person saw me walk in and had both, I stared both of them, you know, through yeah. their heads. Daggers. And, um, and they both, like, kind of hung their heads and gave that guilty expression. They didn't invite me to the damn thing. And so, um, and so I sat on the front row near him. And a woman from the Courier Journal, which at the time was, you know, one of the the best regional newspapers in the country has become another toilet paper, basically. Um, nothing. I can't believe it's still in existence. Um, one of the reporters, Diane April, was sitting on one side, and uh, a student of mine who was a reporter for Leo Weekly was sitting on the other, and then my friend was sitting on the other and I didn't realize that he recorded the whole exchange what happened until a few years later but the press asked their same old questions bored the Dalai Lama to tears he was looking at his watch he loves watches he loves taking them apart and putting them back together he loves mechanical stuff um, if you watch any documentaries or films about him you'll discover that reading books about him but they were like do you think that China will ever let you back in to bed and he gets asked the same questions over and over you know and so I was like thinking okay the whole time here's my chance I work for a year to bring the Dalai Lama to Louisville by God I'm going to ask my one question and so I'm like what the hell do you ask you get a chance to ask the Dalai Lama one question what do you ask and so it finally came to me and so then I like sent that lightning energy right into Jay McGowan's brain and said, you look at me and you give me the chance to ask a question. So he said, okay, one more question. And he looked right at me when he said it. And he said, okay, go ahead, Ron. And so I told the Dalai Lama, that was in April of 94. And I said, in one month in May, I will be producing I said it fast and he's got interpreters thankfully because <laughs> he needed a little help 
<clears throat> translating what I told him, I said, in one month, I will be, be producing a 48-hour nonstop music and poetry insomniacathon to kick off NYU's week-long 50-year celebration of the B generation, and there will be over 300 young people from around the world performing at my event. Will you please share with me, Your Holiness, a message I can then share with young people of all ages? And once he his translator had helped him figure out what I'd said. He smiled real big and he gave me a long message. It was one of the strangest experiences of my life and I think this is one of the direct results of that encounter with the Crystal Skull. One of the door openers is for this whole thing to happen. Um, and it was a life changer and I've had many life, been blessed with many life changing experiences and many of them have been have been disastrous and you don't realize at the time that disaster can birth some of the most greatest beauty in your life if you live through the experience and and so um all i heard when he was talking and i thought i was listening to him but i wasn't i didn't hear a word that he said were the words to the poem never give up and this, there's this film, Outlaw Poet, The Legend of Ron Whitehead, that's being released as fall. It's been in the works for 11 years. And it's, they got this animator to take that tape, the actual tape of our exchange, and put the animation of the Dalai Lama and me, and they're including that in the film. But the poems never give up no matter what is going on never give up develop the heart too much energy in the world is spent developing the mind instead of the heart develop the heart be compassionate not just for your friends but for everyone be compassionate work for peace in the world and in your heart work for peace and I say again never give up no matter what is going on around you never give up and that's all I heard and so then the Dalai Lama ended his message to me, and Jay McGowan said, okay, that's it. His holiness has to be somewhere else in 30 minutes or something like that. And I heard the film crews slapping their machines together and, and load, loading up. And so I was... blown away by what had just happened and I was staring at the floor in front of my feet taking it all in and I thought the Dalai Lama and his security team and his translators were moving on out of the room quickly as Jay left and then I saw this burgundy yellow glow and I looked up and there's his holiness is standing right in front of me and I felt like a little kid. I didn't know what to do. And, um, but I felt this positive energy radiating out from him and I just held my hand up and looked into his eyes and he looked into mine and he grabbed my hand in both of his and he squeezed it real hard and he bowed, blessing the message that he had given me. Then he got a little bit of a, a grin on his face and he turned and he left. And so as soon as I left, I wrote that poem down 
I shared it in New York and I shared it everywhere I've gone since. It appears all over the world now. It's been in National Geographic. It's been in two of his books. At least half the time it doesn't appear with my name on it. My attorney suggested that I trademark the poem that I could become a millionaire. And I actually thought about it overnight. And I told her the next day that I feel like Johnny Appleseed, that I've been given a gift and I would never charge for that. I want it to be a gift to everybody else. And I've produced and given away several editions, thousands of posters of the poem. Uh, he's, he, um, I wrote it down and wrote a message and sent it to him in Dharamsala not long after that, asking for his blessings to produce a poster, which I got a message back from his secretary, which is uh, that message in the UofL Rare Books and Archives. It's a permanent repository for my work since spring of 97. And that a whole lot, of, they got all kinds of stuff there, and they've done a half dozen shows. And, um, but the Dalai Lama gave his blessings and so it's been on banners and behind rock, rock concerts. And um, I, the last time the Dalai Lama was here at the Yum Center, he gave three days of teachings of the... It's one of his highest teachings that he gives. He mm. gives it over three days. And Jen and I went, and we had, like, great seats for the whole thing. And people were selling banners and t-shirts many of which have my never get a poem on it with his name on it without my name on it and so I was like you know I'm so honored and Jen bought me two of the banners <laughs> which I have in my writing hermitage and I'm honored by that and I so it's been recorded and different bands have recorded and sometimes I ask people I ask for permission and I'm like sure you know it's great send me a copy from my archives there's something I wanted to talk to you about. I'm, hopefully, like, the actual question comes to me. So this is going to be long and drawn out, so try to stay with me here. Um, a lot of the sort of um, my writing heroes and, and musicians, I think they're all, or they did, operate on kind of like a common frequency. Now... You mentioned Hunter. Did, did you say common frequency? Yeah. Okay. You mentioned Hunter. I agree. Okay. I like that. You mentioned Hunter. I didn't know him, but as the perspective of somebody watching, right? I've seen him with uh, on those late night show performances where he's being interviewed. I, I hate that kind of format. Mm hmm. But I watch, and he'll say something, and people are laughing because they think he said something with humor, and, oh, wow, he's so crazy. Uh -huh. And I watch, and I'm like, oh, no, 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 he's serious. Yeah. And, and there is, there's almost a sadness there. I agree. And especially completely. in his political writing, mm -hmm. to me, I take it as like, oh, fuck, like, this is the best we can do? Uh -huh. Th this is horrifying. Yes. And he, to me, again, didn't know him, but he was on a menu of, of pharmaceutical cocktails, which to me would be like to sort of like cope with the reality that he's living in. That's exactly right. Okay. That's, 
Uh, interesting to hear. Yeah. So I don't know if it's a fear I have or it, within that frequency maybe. And so I'll, I'll go back to – so Hunter took his life. Anthony Bourdain, who we mentioned. February 20th, 2005. That's correct. Bourdain did the same thing. In 2018. Um uh, last year, I read through Richard Brodigan's entire collection. He did the same thing. Shot himself. Hemingway did the same thing. Hemingway shot One himself. One of Thompson's heroes. I mean, um, I think it was alcoholism that killed um, Kerouac and, and... That's and correct. His stomach ruptured. Hendrix, right? Didn't kill himself, but in a way... He did. Right. Yeah. So... What a painful life. Read their biographies and you'll... So this is my question. And uh, maybe it's a question, but because you knew some of these people, but I also think that your work operates on that same frequency. And, and I'm looking at this and I'm like, could, was the reality of the world just too much? Was it that, you know, they lived outside the lines and that's very attractive to other people mm -hmm. until it's not. Yes. And it's work and it's yeah. tiring. And if yes. you look at a lot of those people... It was shitty for the people around them That's right. that were closest to them. That's right. And so I wonder, is that it? Is it the pressure of, like, no one can stay close to me for too long? And That's I wonder, will, it, will this always be the case for a lot of people operating at that frequency? That's good points. In, um, insightful points. Thank you. And if, if you, we get to the end of this and none of this has been recorded then it will just be going to the universe and we will accept it. That's terrifying. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm watching this thing like a hawk. <laughs> so, um, the best book, there are a handful of good books that have been written on Hunter. William McKean wrote the first biography um, and then his fuller biography, Outlaw Journalist, The Life and Times of Hunter S. Thompson, is an excellent biography of Hunter. William Bill is the head of journalism at Boston University, graduate and undergraduate departments. Um, I brought him into Gonzo Fest. I produced the first, the official Hunter S. Thompson tribute, December 12, 1996, and brought in Hunter, his mother Virginia, his son Juan, Johnny Depp, Warren Zevon, Roxanne Pulitzer, Douglas Brinkley, David Amram, and others. Um, that was one of the most amazing four-hour events I have ever been honored to produce. Um, I... Hunter and I recognized something that we instantly understood in each other, whether you can touch that in this, that knowing in this world or not. But Hunter had a poet's sensitivity and sensibility and it was his creation of the hunter figure, which Rory Patrick Feehan, who just recently completed his doctoral dissertation at the University of Limerick 
on Hunter, with the focus being on the Hunter figure, is a brilliant dissertation. Um, Hunter's, thank you, Hunter created the persona that ended up taking over his life and leading to his death. Um, if you read Timothy Denevy's new book, Freak Kingdom, which focuses on the 10 years from the time of JFK's assassination <clears throat> until the resignation of Richard M. Nixon, that's the period of time through which Hunter discovered his voice and came into his own as a writer. And it's the best, closest, and it reads like an action novel. Timothy Denevi has done such a brilliant job in that book of writing, of the close research and the translation of that research into a storytelling that makes you anybody want to read it whether you're an avid reader or not but it reveals things about Hunter that haven't been revealed in other books about his hard his hard ass hard nosed work ethic his determination to become a great writer no matter what his willingness to go the extra miles to pay the price to see his dream come true and and he lived for years on um, a mild form of speed uh, to stay awake, to get that extra buzz, and to keep it, to maintain it, and to and to heighten his awareness, his sensibilities, and having done a lot of drugs myself and realized and to get into some diff I got into some difficult situations with some of those and I, I quit I got off of pharmaceuticals um, nine years ago and my doctor's a longtime friend of mine and would give me you know what I needed and wanted with the high metabolism though I would double and triple dose the drugs, and then that would lead to drinking more red wine, just to balance things out, and like um, extrapolating on going out on on what you're talking about. Take Jerry Garcia, Tom Petty, Jimi Hendrix, any of those people who have mixed cocaine and heroin for example to get to that that energy and that mood to just that place where it all felt right um, that's a tightrope a dangerous tightrope and there's no fucking net under it and history has proven that because uh, those people have died as a result of that lifestyle that life and but Hunter, you examine his life, he was hard to live with. 
Yeah. And he could be a Southern gentleman, and he was a Southern gentleman, but he could also get into places where he had that darkness and and could become... I was with him, and I took my kids out to visit him, and I, my kids knew about him, and... Um, um, there was one place where he was signing some posters for Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who we were going to have dinner with in San Francisco the next night. We were on a 5,000-mile, two-week cross-country tour. Um, and, and he had two drawers in, his, in Al, the kitchen at Al Farm there. One was filled with silver magic markers and one with gold and he was signing some of the posters with silver and some with gold and one of them had gotten frozen up and he couldn't get the ink to come out and he he went like that and he's god damn he started cussing and he just god damn and, just, and went off and became in a matter of moments um the madman and Deborah Fuller who took care of him for years and he had a cabin built, and I stayed over there one night. I went out on another trip with my oldest son, Nathaniel, another poster run. Um, she came over and put her arms, stood behind him and put her arms over him and talked to him like, it wasn't necessarily like a little kid, but like a wild animal to calm it down. And um, so he came back to his senses and all of a sudden he was just okay and he got another marker out and started signing again and so he had Hunter had Hunter was never like everybody else he was always the leader of the pack growing up he was a juvenile delinquent he didn't fit in he he was brilliant smart but the fact that his family lived, Ransel's in the heart of a lot of old Louisville money, and his friends were like rich kids, mm. and his dad was, I think, an insurance salesman, and his mom became a librarian. She became a head librarian downtown, became an alcoholic, and uh, but Hunter, his dad died when he was a young teenager, and that affected him, too. That made all that anger and resentment and rage in him grow, I think. And, um, but all of those things went into to making Hunter who he was, which was, and I remind, reminded my students for 20 years when I would teach Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas in a 20th century American culture and literature class um, oh, awesome. or teach 1984 in a 20th century um, European literature class and you know Orwell's this you know political psychic person well Orwell's I've studied all of Orwell's works his novels and his essays and, and Hunter's writings too. And I told my students, these are works of great literature 
and I want you to forget about the person and study the work and look at the writing, <clears throat> look at each line, the words that he chooses, the structure of those words in each line, the paragraphs, the way he's writing. Read some a couple of pages out loud. Listen to the rhythm, the sound of the writing. And Hunter used to intentionally type Hemingway and Fitzgerald out on the typewriter to listen to the rhythms of the words to... Um, to, to get the music of what they were writing to study the writing itself but also Hunter was into the music of it and poetry and music I've told people for a long time are in the same bed together having babies called poems and songs and uh, some of my friends including some uh, Lee Ronaldo. I don't know if you've heard the band Sonic Youth. Of course. Yeah. Well, Lee's, um, I did the next to the last, what turned out to be the next to the last interview with William S. Burroughs. And I set up the last, what turned out to be the last interview with Burroughs for my friend Lee Ronaldo and the whole band, uh, Sonic Youth. And they got Michael Stipe and they flew out to Lawrence, Kansas and did the last interview with Burroughs. But you knew Burroughs? I did. I did the next to last interview with Burroughs, and um, and so, and it was that interview that I swore I started getting other people to do interviews for me when I got somebody I was going to do an interview with because that one started out, um, and I was, I know how to do an interview, and but I couldn't get him to talk. And I was like, come on, just, and I was asking him open-ended questions too. You know, not yes or no. And, but he did finally start relaxing and he opened up and it was a great interview. But, um, but many of the famous musicians understand the importance of lyrics to music and want to be poets too. Bono and you too, for example. Lee Ronaldo and Sonic Youth. Um, Robert Hunter. I got a phone call from Robert Hunter one day, the lyricist for the Grateful Dead. And that was a few months after I brought Diane to Prima here. And, uh, and so these people, Bob Dylan, they honor poet. Bob Dylan loved the beat generation. And the documentary, my friend Chris Velver, who's a documentary, film, documentary filmmaker and one of the our country's greatest photographers, check out his books, are amazing. Bob Dylan opens his documentary on Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And it was the beat generation that inspired the music of the hippie generation. And um, look at the way the Beatles spelled beat. It wasn't E-E-T, it was E-A-T. And so all those connections run all the way back to, you know, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. So, but, but Hunter was a sensitive soul. He created the persona that made him famous of the drug and alcohol dazed and confused 
is a madman living outside the law, breaking, going beyond the limits. And, but he was interested in that stuff too. And he couldn't have written the things that he wrote if he didn't have the desire to go beyond the status quo, which he always did. And if you read the end of Hell's Angels, which I meant to bring the book in for my truck, I'm going to be in San Francisco where Hell's Angels started, the book that put him on the map. Um, it's a beautiful, big coffee table-sized paperback, and I'm the contributor for the book. Margaret Ann Harrell was the editor of that book for Random House, and we're flying out to San Francisco, the publisher Norfolk Press at... Canessa Gallery, the historic gallery, is having a week all the month of July this year. They're having an art exhibit of Hell's Angels related to that book. And for a week, we're going to have three release shows. And so I'm sure, considering the pandemic, you've been traveling some. Well, most people haven't been. And creative artists are especially just, you know, itching to get out and travel. And I've been wanting to go to Europe and but it's like things are terrible over there now and they're working in reverse all of a sudden but um, but Hunter it's like this last episode that I had when I okay I love red wine I was never a drunk and I'm not an alcoholic and I have I've read all the AA and NA materials, and I respect anything that helps people who are addicts come out of that. But I I do have Irish blood on both sides of my family, and I'm not blaming Ireland. I love Ireland. I've done three tours there, and um, but I I like to drink, and I drink. I'd gotten to a place with through a couple of divorces and. My relations, I came within a week of marrying Birgitta Jan's daughter in Iceland. Birgitta founded the Pirate Party in Iceland and not long ago stepped down as from her second term as a member of parliament. She, I was there in October of 2008 when the global economy collapsed with my band Southside doing five shows at Iceland's Airwaves, annual Airwaves music festival. And I was there at Parl in front of Parliament when the first big demonstration occurred, standing by Birgitta, because we had split up. I, I told her a week before we were going to get married, a few years before that, that I wasn't going to marry her um, because she reminded me too much of my first wife. And I was sitting down, stupidly sitting down when I told her that, and she kicked the shit out of me when I told her. And but that ended our relationship. And but she, we became friends again. And um, so, where was I going with that? What the hell was it? It was something related to. It was connected to Hunter. Shit, I got lost in that one. That's okay. Um, so, anyway, Iceland, man, if you get a chance to go, you got to go. It's amazing. So, Leslie's been. Have you been keeping up with the volcano? 
Uh, Tim was just showing me some pictures. I have a friend there who's sending me pictures today. Well, yeah. my grand, my goddaughter Tanya Pollock, who is the daughter of one of the two musicians I mentioned earlier, earlier, Michael and Danny Pollock. Um, she lives out not too far from where that's happening. And um, is that in the north? No. No, it's in the southern part. It's more of a coast. It's a coastal region. But there are over 30 volcanoes in Iceland. And Edgar Casey said that when the earth changes occur, when the magnetic poles shift, that Iceland, Japan, uh, much of New York, the southeast, all of California, would disappear as in the twinkling of an eye, of the eye. So you might want to be thinking about Kentucky as your new home. <laughs> That's a good picture. <laughs> I'm sorry to say that, but but it's good to know. <laughs> yeah, Iceland, I thought it was really beautiful. I have um, a friend who lives in Stickishformer, I think is how you say it correctly. And all the Icelanders would la- laugh at you, no doubt. Or they, some because the way can, I'm saying it. Some, the way you're saying it. But I've been laughed at many times is the reason I say it. But and they so, might congratulate you. Ho- hopefully. I really practice it because I actually, I had hitchhiked when I was there because the bus schedule was so slim yeah. to, to get around it, unless you're just Out, locally in Reykjavik. Once you get Reykjavik. outside of Reykjavik. Exactly. Yeah. It comes like once a week. Yeah. And so uh, I got picked up by an Icelander. And he didn't speak any English. And so I was trying to really just pronounce where I wanted to go. That's interesting. I- he maybe drove me like 10, 15 minutes until I finally got into uh, another like ride with someone else who was from the U.S., from Montana. Oh, wow. And he took me all the way to the airport. I had a great experience. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Very lucky in that way. Huh. But the the country itself, I thought, was like re- really quite amazing. I didn't spend too much time in, in Reykjavik. But. That's good. That's good. I spent not all of my time, but the majority of it in Reykjavik. I didn't have any wheels in that, and so. Oh yeah, you're definitely a car. <laughs> you yeah, need to get around. Mm, yeah, but I could get to the airport. And I traveled to Europe and the U.S. while I was there plenty of times. But anyway any other questions yeah maybe I'll, I'll I'll wrap it with this okay sorry to get <laughs> I feel like some of my thoughts are a bit dark but um, no dark is fine okay because no light is filled life is filled with day and night light and dark and it's yin and yang I love Taoism have you ever studied Taoism. I haven't um, studied, but okay. know a bit. Okay. Well, I love it's it's a, a spiritual, the most spiritual poetry, and the suggestion there is that we are both light and dark, and the sooner we embrace that, and all that life has to offer us, the more freely we'll we will flow through it accepting everything with fullness. So what is your question? So here's the thought, right? And here's another one of these. Um, Obviously, 
your life feels long while you're living it, but it's not long. And when we look at like historical revolutions, they can take a, a very long time. So maybe we're still in the midst of some type of progression and progressive revolution. But, you know, you mentioned the beats and the things that they helped to create change for. But it feels like even today that change is like incremental. And, and you have artists and, and musicians and poets and writers who are often writing about a, a common theme, about, you know, a better, a better life. Um, you mentioned like living for love and, and for like eventual peace. But when you really look at the structure of things today, you can say, yeah, maybe there's no more kings, but our kings are now multinational, neo-colonial institutions and... and Billionaires. No, I write about this a lot. I agree yeah. completely. So... Continue. Do you... I mean, does, does the art just keep repeating itself generation after generation, or, or do we get to a point where the art is actually replicated in, in real life? Well, this is essential to, to life, this question. Is there such thing as progress? Or, and, and if so, what is progress? What does it mean collectively and individually? And I think those are two separate questions, the collective and the individual, because, and I, I think ultimately we have to look at everything individually. But anything we do emanates out from us to others. Therefore, to our neighbors, whoever those are around us. And so at some point in my life, it became important to me to be a, um, to dwell, to do as much good as possible <laughs> for myself and for others. Going back to Taoism, I started to learn the principle of karma, which is the law of cause and effect. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. It's simple science, too. And so if you want things to go well for you, it'd be good to yourself and be good to others. And even when things don't go well for you, how are you going to turn it around from the bad that's going on right now? Your car breaks down, you have troubles, you know, you're in an accident, somebody mugs you, beats you up, threatens you, whatever might be going on. How do you turn that around and make it okay, make it good again? Well, there's a multitude of ways, and each individual has to decide in each moment what action to take to make that happen. And you start with yourself, and you find daily, I come up with affirmations, visualizations, prayer, meditation, which is simply being still, which you can do while you're awakened, you can lower your brainwave activity from beta to alpha without smoking marijuana unless you want to. You can go into a relaxed alpha state at any point through different, by using different exercises or relaxation. A lot of people do yoga today. It's not my cup of tea, but whatever turns you on. Sports, exercise, and then go to... Theta, Alpha, Theta, Delta. Theta is the vision state. It's the state where it can be 
like the waking sleeping state, uh, and then Delta's the sleep state. It's been proven through dream research now that you can remain fully conscious in a Delta state. And so it's amazing what's going on with dream research. So there's so much, the frontier is within each one of us. That's the real frontier right there. That's what will travel with us when we die. And it's fine with me. Whatever people believe is fine with me. I don't care. It's up to each individual. You know, because of personal experience, I believe in reincarnation. I believe that I will have traveled, will continue to travel, travel even now in waking, sleeping states of consciousness. And life is an adventure. And I love it. And so I choose to remain hopeful that through all hardship, there are always people, young people of all ages who choose to believe there are ways for each of us individually and collectively to heal ourselves, our neighbors, our earth, uh, and we connect with each other. The more we have conversations like the one we're having right now, the more we realize we're not alone. There are more people out here in the world who want what we want, which is for everybody to live together in as much harmony as we can sum it up, although there will never be complete harmony because it's not the nature of this world. It's harmonious harmonious in an inharmonious way. Um, nature is holds a terrible beauty. It's beautiful. The pristine spring day in Kentucky, there's nothing like it. The trees are budding, the flowers are blooming, and then come night and a tornado wipes your trailer away and your hut and life is hell what happens now where do you start half your family's dead what are you going to do um, and all the terrible things that can happen and you turn around and you don't give up and you suffer and you struggle through it and you find your way out of that darkness back into light you re rebuild you rise again and all of a sudden life becomes beautiful again so it, there's this terrible beauty is inherent in life and so I work to accept that, to accept that death is as much a part of life as birth and the journey itself, which is amazing, uh, the ups and downs, the roller coaster ride of it. And so, um, yes, the world is controlled by greedy, power monger bastards, um, and a few of them. And, um, and, and I stand against all those people. I stand for the working class and the poor more than anybody, but I want everybody to have an opportunity to be themselves. But how much do you fucking need whoever you are? You know, let's share what we have. It's one thing I learned growing up. Daddy taught me how to be a warrior. Mama taught me compassion. She taught me what it meant to be they both taught me how to give without anticipation of reciprocation, which is real giving. You know, I don't give loans. Hell, I never had the money because any money I get goes into the art that I do. Um, and so if somebody needs some money, if I happen to have it, of course, I share it with you unless you're just an asshole, unless you're just a sponge. 
you know, who's soaking up everything. Unless you're damn a fucking emotional vampire, you bastard, get out of my face. And so... <laughs> So I can start down that path, too. <laughs> I can't stand people who use people. Um, I like people who help people who can't help themselves, especially. And I, I don't like lazy people. I want people, you know, if you got the opportunity, get with it. Do something, whatever it is. <laughs> well, listen, Ron. Um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you me. all. Thank Man, you. <laughs> I, wish we had, I wish we had a long time to hang out and visit because I want to know more because this is your blog spot and you came here to interview me. You know, I sat here and yapped my jaw. I'm glad Jen in here because she would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard that before. <laughs> That's why and you're she, here. And she would leave the room. And, um, hi, Jen. And, um, Jen's an amazing person, y'all. She is she is like a creative genius like no other poet and writer and photographer and just anything she does is a work of art and she's a badass nobody fucks with her or she will stomp your ass into the dirt she's from baltimore mm -hmm. and so well this conversation lives in this space but the the knowing each other continues past this so amen yeah. it's 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 good to meet two kindred spirits yeah, absolutely. so thank you all for coming no, to Kentucky thank you thank you and thank you for being here on this beautiful spring day cheers alright alright Voyagers that is a wrap on episode 215 of the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast I'm doing this outro a couple hours after the conversation so we went out for a really delicious dinner here in Nashville where we are just eating like Kings and Queens. It's amazing. And I'm happy and I'm glad to be on the road and I'm really loving Kentucky. So, Voyagers, I hope you liked this conversation and thank you for listening. And as always, please, please, please take care of each other. I will catch you very, very soon. <laughs>